What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It's Friday, May 13th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, what's going on? But hey, not too much. Not too much. I'm feeling good, looking good. Uh, look good, feel good, play good. Pay, they pay good. Podcast good. It is Friday the 13th, so let's hope uh, oh. nothing nothing bad happens. <laughs> Eerie. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into the show. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. Yes. All right, let's get into our quick hits for the week. So our first one is by Tom Perkins of The Guardian, who writes, Forever chemicals may have polluted 20 million acres of U.S. cropland, study says. PFAs, or per- and polyfluoral alkyl substances, is the group name for around 9,000 compounds used to make products heat, water, or stain-resistant. They are called forever chemicals because they don't break down naturally, and they've been linked to cancer, thyroid disruption, liver problems, birth defects, and immunosuppression, just to name a few things. PFAs are used in thousands of products, and the chemicals are usually discharged into our sewer systems. PFAs entering sewage sludge is a big issue because regulators don't require sludge to be tested for PFAs or closely track where it's spread. Public health advocates warn the practice is poisoning the nation's food supply. So the issue is that we don't know just how widespread PFAs really are since they're not really a priority for testing. A report from the Environmental Working Group, or EWG, found that 20 million acres of U.S. cropland could be contaminated by using sewage sludge as fertilizer. EWG found that Ohio keeps the most precise records out of any state, and sludge has been applied to 5% of its farmland since 2011. When you spread that data out across the rest of the country, that's where the 20 million acre estimate comes from. And that's also a conservative estimate, too, so it very well could be more. The article says that all sewage sludge is thought to contain forever chemicals, and they've been found contaminating crops, cattle, water, and humans on farms where the sludge was spread as fertilizer. Not great. So 19 billion pounds of toxic sludge have been used as fertilizer since 2016 across 41 different states, accounting for 60% of the nation's sludge being used as cropland fertilizer. Studies have found that the health cost of using sludge outweighs the benefits of removing it from sewer water. And the argument is basically that it's a tough sell to spend billions of dollars to pull sludge out of the water and then essentially put it into our nation's food supply instead. Yeah, and calls to ban using toxic sludge as a fertilizer on cropland are becoming more and more popular. Yeah, this is a tough one because, you know, on the one hand, you want to pull whatever you can out of water that's going to eventually be cleaned and sent back out into the nation's waterways. So I, I get that. But to use it as fertilizer, sure, there's going to be stuff in 
sewer water that's naturally a good fertilizer. But the sludge part is where, hey, that's where all of those chemicals that are breaking down are going to enter now our food supply. So I get why they're calling that a tough sell. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally behind people saying we should uh, we should ban this being used. That being said, I'm not sure what the proper disposal is, but we will let people smarter than you and I figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep my hands off of that one. And just for the record, toxic sludge is, it's its just a terrible sentence. It's not a good sounding couple <laughs> of words at all. Yeah, it kind of fits in with this whole environmentalism is kind of a common sense thing that we brought up either last week or the week before where we were saying that <laughs> a lot of things that we just accept as common practice when you really think about them, probably not the best for the environment. And using toxic sludge as uh, yeah. as a fertilizer, I mean, toxic <laughs> is right in the name there. So, yeah. And sludge. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, let's hope that one gets banned uh, across the nation as, you know, more calls and more protests start pouring in. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's get into the next one. And it is titled Builders Hurt Protected Areas in Climate Weary Puerto Rico by Danica Cotto of the Associated Press. The United States Territory of Puerto Rico has seen one of the island's largest mangrove forests experience a lot of illegal construction. The forest is part of an ecological reserve that is unfortunately seeing the effects of oversight, decreasing budgets, and permits illegally issued by the government. Some protected areas are prone to flooding or landslides, so construction in those areas puts them at further risk. Investigators found that over 3,600 mangrove trees were illegally cut to accommodate homes that were illegally built. Puerto Rico's Justice Department has launched an investigation into this. And I know we talked about mangroves on the show once before. So, Nick, if you remember, let me know when. But if you don't, uh, listeners, go back, check it out. It was definitely a good conversation. Mangroves are really important and they kind of serve as a buffer between saltwater and freshwater areas. So by illegally building in the mangrove forests, the area becomes more vulnerable to wetter and more intense hurricane seasons. Yeah, and that's all while climate change is making hurricane season already longer and more intense. Yep, so not really a great combo there. The Jobos Bay National Estuarian Research Reserve is now home to several illegally built concrete block homes with fences, pools, and there's even a dock going into the water there. The reserve has protected nearly 2,900 acres of mangrove forests surrounded by water and is home to the critically endangered hawksbill sea turtle and the vulnerable West Indian manatee, among other species. Yeah, activists and some frustrated citizens say this is because of Puerto Rico's Department of Natural Resources and other agencies not doing their jobs. Last month, the secretary of the Natural Resources Department resigned. He told the local radio station that some employees investigating the illegal construction were receiving death threats. So some of this can definitely be chalked up to developers knowing the right people or paying some people off the books to push their permits through, but... Come on. I know all governments have some element of corruption somewhere along the way, but this one's a lot more serious than, you know, your friend works in the town's building department, so you finish your basement despite it being zoned as an unfinished basement. You know, both are illegal, but this one's going to have incredible environmental impacts that are going to impact way more than just your personal taxes on your home. Yeah, and like they... It's it's completely different, too, because you're cutting down 3,600 trees, like, just to build homes. And I, I can't really understand the the logic behind 
how they got away with it. I mean, it literally just must be like someone's got an inside man, like you just said, but it's definitely frustrating. And I'm sure if you're, you know, in Puerto Rico, you're probably frustrated by this right now. Yeah. And I'm sure you're extremely frustrated. Like you said, if you're one of those government employees that's investigating the illegal construction, because all they're doing is attempting to do their job. And now they're receiving death threats because people bought these homes. People want to continue living in their homes, but those homes should have never been built in the first place. So sticky situation and one where I definitely side with the environment on, because like we said, these were illegally built homes in an area that's supposed to be protected. So, yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of the, um, I can't remember what it was, but it was some hotel that like was built on, um, national preserve land. Oh that? yes, yes, yes. And there was a golf yeah. course there and yeah, it's yeah all being, they had to knock it all down. Yeah. This so. is not that situation. They are not going to knock down these homes now. I feel like they, they're, they have to keep them up now. You know, like they already have fences, pools, all that stuff. I don't think this is a situation where you just like put people out of a home, you know? Yeah, I think now is more of an adaptation sort of thing where they have to figure out how they can continue to protect the reserve and not have this incredible impact on the environment without knocking down these homes. But first step has got to be no further building should be allowed in this area that building wasn't supposed to be going on in to begin with. Yeah, exactly. All right, our next story is from the New York Times, where Annie Roth writes, the ocean's biggest garbage pile is full of floating life. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch now has equal parts marine life and plastic floating on it. Kind of. Before we get into the marine life there, let's just talk about the patch. The world's oceans contain five gyres, which are circular whirlpool-like currents that kind of pull things towards their center. And this is where ocean plastic will accumulate, as well as other forms of ocean debris. Um, Pretty much all the litter that we say, hey, it's going to get into our waterways, this is where it ends up. Um, Since, unlike animals, the garbage and the plastic is not trying to swim away from those currents. Yes, exactly. So the largest patch is the Great Pacific Patch, and it contains 79,000 tons of plastic. It's located halfway between Hawaii and California. Small sea creatures now exist in equal numbers with the pieces of plastic in some parts of the patch, meaning that what many of us think of as a garbage island is more of a garbage soup of plastic bottles, fishing nets, tires, and toothbrushes floating with sea creatures. And that beautiful analogy is according to French swimmer Benoit Lecomte. The research team that traveled with Lecomte to the patch found a much higher concentration of Newston within the patch than around it. Newston include blue dragon nudibranches, Portuguese man-o'-wars, and other small surface-dwelling animals. So what's interesting is that not much is known about Newston because they're only studied on oceanic expeditions, which are both timely and expensive. The Newston that live far out to sea in the ocean gyres are even harder to study. There are two nonprofit organizations that are working to remove floating plastic from the Great Pacific Patch. And here's a cool quote from the article that explains how the largest one called the Ocean Cleanup Foundation from the Netherlands works. They developed a net specifically to collect and concentrate marine debris as it is pulled across the sea surface by winds and currents. Once the net is full, a ship takes its contents to land for proper disposal. Yeah, this is super cool. Um, I, I think I saw something earlier this year or late last year, and it was basically this robotic ship 
that was powered entirely by renewable energy because it was battery powered and then they yes. charged it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would send it out. We talked about it on the show. It? Oh, it had a name. It was like yes. called Sally You're right, you're right, you're right. I don't remember what it was. Uh, <sighs> we could look into that. But um, yeah, you're right. We did talk about it on the show. Yeah, yeah. And they would send it out to sea and just pretty much collect all of the garbage. So, you know, garbage cleanup is really important for something like this. And now that they've found Newston living in really high numbers in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I'm curious what this is going to mean for, you know, our conservationists going to get involved and say, we need to figure out what to do with the patch without impacting the the marine life. Or is the assumption, hey, if we get rid of the garbage, they're going to go back to where they were supposed to be living. And I don't know. Yeah. And like, we, we have like all these beach cleanups and stuff like that. It's great to keep the beaches clean. That's like, that's where it starts. But ultimately you, you have to go back to what we talked about actually in our Monday episode about plastics reduction, like the reduction of plastic production. Mm-hmm. You know, if let's say, I can't remember if the thing was called Sally or not, but let's just call it Sally. <laughs> if it, if it's doing its job out there and like continuously cleaning the oceans and picking up plastic and and all the that other garbage we need to give it some leverage you know we need to give it leverage and and not produce as much plastic yeah ocean cleanup is a band-aid and right now this problem needs stitches so i don't really think that focusing 100 percent of our energy on just getting the plastics out of the the ocean is going to be the solution here it's going to help it's really important to do that but we got to cut this one off at the source so that we don't wind up in the same situation in another five years after we've, you know, gotten more plastic out of the ocean. Yeah. So the findings from this report have not undergone peer review yet, but to sum it all up, plastic poses a threat to marine life, killing millions of seabirds and over 100,000 marine mammals every year. Plastics are either going to entangle animals, be consumed by them, which leads to starvation because their stomachs are full, but they have no nutrients in the plastic they're eating, or they're going to break down into microplastics, which have harmful impacts on all marine life as it works its way up the food chain. Yeah, and the number one goal that everyone needs to agree upon first is that we need to stop the flow of new plastics into the ocean. Exactly. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we've got two more cool quick hits for you. Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT.
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, massive amount of water found below Antarctica's ice sheet for first time by CNN's Katie Hunt. The groundwater system was found in West Antarctica, and scientists said it is likely to be more of the consistency of a wet sponge than flowing water. Um, this could have some implications for how Antarctica reacts to climate change. Yeah, no one had done detailed imaging of the groundwater below Antarctica until now, and scientists wanted to make sure they are looking at all of the continent's water, including ice flowing into the ocean. Antarctica contains 187 feet or 57 meters of sea level rise potential. Yeah, so that number is obviously astronomical, which is why scientists want to make sure they fully understand the water system as a whole. They know that the ice cap isn't entirely solid, as hundreds of liquid lakes and rivers are cradled within the continent's ice. But this is the first time that large amounts of liquid water below the ice has been found. Scary, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the article says that the researchers calculated that if the amount of groundwater from the sediments was squeezed into the 100 square kilometers or 38.6 square miles they mapped into the surface, it would form a lake that ranged from 220 to 820 meters, which is 722 feet to 2,690 feet deep. So we're talking about a massive amount of water. One of the researchers noted that the Empire State Building is 420 meters deep, so this lake would be somewhere between half to twice as deep as the Empire State Building is tall. <sighs> Jesus. <laughs> the researchers believe that ocean water reached the area during a warm period between five to 7,000 years ago, and as ice advanced, freshwater filtered the salt water deeper into the sediment. They provided one reason for hope that we wanted to touch on very quickly, it's possible that the water from the ice draining as slowly as it is could serve as a break for the ice's forward motion towards the sea. That's a good thing because ice melts quicker when it breaks off into smaller pieces. And a good way to think of that is how shaved ice in your drink melts a lot quicker than, for example, a whiskey stone. Oh, I could talk about drink dilution <laughs> all day, Matt, but I won't right now. <laughs> Um, there is also a scenario where the deep water could well up and accelerate the rate of ice flowing into the ocean. Yeah, so, you know, two ends of the spectrum there and their estimates. Um, we're not going to speculate on this one because, frankly, more research needs to be done to say what this actually means for sea level rise. So we will leave that one up to the researchers actually working on this. And for now, we're going to move on. All right, our last quick hit of the week is from Nature, where Georgia Guglielmi writes, eating one-fifth less beef could have deforestation. Within the next 30 years, if 20% of global beef consumption is replaced with a meat substitute called microprotein, then it could have deforestation and the carbon emissions associated with it. Microprotein is produced in steel tanks by fermenting a fungus with glucose and other nutrients. It's been around since the 1980s in the UK and is now available in many countries under the name corn, but it's actually spelled Q-U-O-R-N. Yeah, and for anyone out there that's like, ew, I would never eat a fungus. Brother, I eat mushrooms like at least once a week. They're <laughs> delicious. <laughs> Beef farming is a top driver of deforestation worldwide. And cattle raised for beef are a major source of methane, which is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. This 
like anything that we bring up on the show is not going to solve climate change all by itself. But having deforestation and reducing the methane from cattle production, you know, those are going to be really important pieces of this really important puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And if we were to reduce beef consumption by 20% by 2050, methane emissions would be reduced by 11% along with having deforestation, like we mentioned. Yeah, so the impact on deforestation is so great under this model because global demand for beef would not increase. So the expansion of pasture areas or cropland for feeding cattle aren't needed, according to the study's lead author. The impact on water use would not really change under this scenario because the water used currently to grow crops for feeding cattle would just be used for other crops. Francisca Guap, who studies food systems at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, said that more studies should be done to look at replacing beef with plant-based alternatives or lab-grown meat. Nick, what are your thoughts on plant-based alternatives or lab-grown meat as ideas? Listen, I'm not against funguses. I said that before. I'm all in on mushrooms or lab-grown meat. Um, it sounds a little weird. I think I think we should come up with something different besides lab-grown meat, but I'd be willing to try it. And obviously, plant-based alternatives, I'm, I'm in on. My girlfriend is, is half vegan, half vegetarian. So um, that's definitely something that we have a lot here, and I'm fine with it. I like it. I We try and have it at least like two to three times a week, so... Yeah, I've had Beyond Meat, I've had Impossible Meat. I, I like them both, um, but I don't really use them for burgers much. I think, you know, you can make some really good tacos with that because, I mean, taco seasoning makes anything taste delicious. But I'm not really in on plant-based alternatives to meat for burgers because I'd rather just eat a veggie burger. I think they taste a lot better. And, you know, granted, I love the taste of vegetables, so it's not really a hard sell for me to, you know, whip <laughs> up a veggie burger, but... For some people that aren't really into them and they want to cut down their beef consumption, Impossible Meat, Beyond Meat, or whatever that next brand that's going to come out, it's pretty good. Definitely give it a shot. Yeah, agreed. The lab-grown meat is something that I haven't tried, and I don't know if that's readily available yet, but I know that some countries are like in the process of clearing it, which that's kind of cool to me to be able to just take the cells from you know certain animals and then instead of raising it for slaughter, essentially you're able to just create ground beef in a lab. Like that's, it's so cool how far technology has come in the past, you know, 20 years just on the meat alternative front. Seriously. And like, this is something that like could really, really change the game because this is not something we could have ever accounted for. We always talk about like plant-based alternatives and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Lab grown meat, that was not on the table a couple years ago. I mean, it was... Definitely not something anyone was considering. So if it tastes like real meat, you could really change some minds, especially if they know for sure, like, this is good for you. Don't worry. It's fine. Well, the thing is, it would definitely taste like it because it's literally just a clone of the cells that are then grown and expanded out. So true. Yeah, it's in theory, it sounds great. I don't know. I don't know how the process works. <laughs> Maybe we should do a deep dive into that next month. Listen, if anyone out there has some lab-grown meat available that you know you can package and send to me and it would still be fresh, do it and I'll give you my address. Send it over. I'll make some meatballs with it. I'll make burgers. <laughs> Anything you send me will be made. And that goes for me too. If you heard this and you were like, hey, I would love to send Matt some plant-based alternatives, send me over some mushrooms, some black beans, some broccoli, and I will <laughs> dice everything up and make the best damn veggie burger you've ever had. <laughs> nice. All right. 
That'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I are going to be back on Monday for a discussion of last month's IPCC report. Yes. So we're going to break down the bad news from the report, but also why we aren't totally screwed. So tune in. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of our music. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can find me on soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace. Peace.